If you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, verses that are most likely familiar to many of us, and yet verses that summarize very well the teaching from the chapter of the Confession for this evening. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are considering tonight, as you've noted in the bulletin, hopefully if you got one, on the inside there is the 16th chapter of the Confession. We're considering tonight chapter 16 on good works. Biblical Christianity has always emphasized, anywhere where the true gospel is being preached, biblical Christianity has always emphasized that we are saved by grace. Apart from our works, just like we just read in Ephesians, we're saved by grace apart from our works. Not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ. That's clearly what we've just read in Ephesians, but it's all over the pages, especially of the New Testament. We see again and again, we are saved not as a result of our works, but by grace. For example, Titus chapter 3, but when the kindness of God our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not saved by deeds, but according to God's mercy. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, without works of the law, in other words. So when it comes to justification, when it comes to our adoption, when it comes to the question, How are you made right with your creator, your God, your maker? Our works do not even enter into the equation. So if you're writing up an equation for X plus X, X plus Y equals salvation, nowhere in that equation do our works enter in. It is God's grace through faith equals salvation because of the work of Christ. It's impossible for us to overemphasize salvation by grace, which is why I've said it, I think, ten times so far in the two minutes. You're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. We can't overemphasize it. It's the very foundation of the gospel. And it was this rediscovery of justification, salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, that was at the very heart of the Reformation in the 16th century. So in the 16th century, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, a number of others, they rediscovered this doctrine in the Bible of justification by faith alone apart from our works. And they started to preach it and proclaim it. And by God's grace, they brought a lot of light to a very dark situation where works had been emphasized for so long, they entered in and said, actually, it's grace. You're saved by grace not as a result of your works. But anytime there's a biblical movement like that, anytime God is at work in bringing light to his church and growing his church in an understanding of the gospel, there's also going to be opposition. And 
attempts to deter that movement. And certainly Satan is never content to allow the church to experience growth in grace and growth in godliness without making every effort he can to destroy it. And that's what happened in the days of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church rejected and opposed this doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works. Just some some quotes from the Council of Trent. This is a 16th century council of the Roman Catholic Church where basically they got together to address some of the doctrines of the Reformation. Things like justification by faith alone. So this Council of Trent was called in the 16th century. Here are a couple quotes from it. Uh, The language is a little bit difficult, but uh, hopefully it will be clear enough. The Council of Trent says, If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification, but not a cause of the increase of justification, let him be anathema or accursed. So that's pretty straightforward. If anyone thinks you're saved by grace and that our works don't come into the equation for justification and increase our justification, you should be accursed. You are accursed, according to the Catholic Church. Again, in Canon 32, if anyone says that good works are the gifts of God so that they are not also the good merits of the one that is justified or do not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life, let him be anathema. In other words, if good works don't merit us in some measure eternal life, let him be anathema, accursed. Why was it that the Roman Catholic Church was so opposed to this doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works? What would lead them to say, anyone who says you're saved by grace freely as a gift of God apart from works, you're accursed? Why would they say that? Well, there's a number of reasons, of course, but one of, one of the, the main reasons why there's such an aversion to that doctrine, such an opposition of that doctrine, is the argument that says if you teach people that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from their works, then you will remove any incentive for them to live godly lives. They will have no motivation, no reason to pursue good works in their life. If, if they're saved by grace, then why does it matter how they live? And so they said that doctrine is from the devil, essentially. And it's in that context that we find our confession, or this chapter from the confession. It's written in order to address some of those issues, some of the objections and and, uh, opposition that they were facing by, in particular in in their context, the Roman Catholic Church. And the point of the chapter is to show we are saved by grace alone, but good works are also essential and very important to the Christian life. They must be kept from the context, good works must be kept from the context of justification, but they must be heavily emphasized in the context of Christian living. In other words, good works matter. They're important. And of course, So back in the 16th century, you had the Roman Catholic Church making accusations against the Reformers, calling them accursed. Uh, That, that, by the way, has never been reversed by the Roman Catholic Church. They've never gone back and said uh, that they were wrong in the Council of Trent. That is important. Um, They've never said, actually, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Um, But that accusation was made in the 16th century. 
But the same sorts of accusations have been made against the gospel from the very earliest days of its existence, where people have said, if you preach so much grace, then you'll remove the the incentive to obey, the incentive for good works. The Apostle Paul had to deal with it in Romans chapter 6, after he explains we're justified because of the one man's righteousness, Christ Jesus. We were all dead in Adam, but we're justified in Christ apart from our works. And then he goes on to say, where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. And so then the objection comes and says, well, Paul, if grace abounds where sin abounds, if it doesn't matter how we live, but we're forgiven by grace alone, then why not sin so that grace would abound even more? Why does it matter how we live? And Paul says, he's answering that objection, he says, what shall we say then? This is, the, this is the objection. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Paul is saying there's, there's no room for our works and justification, but in the Christian life, how can we who have died to sin not live a life of good works? How can we continue to live in sin? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in teaching Uh, That same section from Romans, he has a a quote, uh, here's a quote from him. When when he was preaching through the book of Romans, Martin Lloyd-Jones lived in the early and mid-20th century in Wales and then in England. This is is what he said about, uh, about that sort of accusation. He said, if your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you're probably not putting it correctly. In other words, if when you preach the gospel, you're not open, at least to some degree, to people to come and say, you're preaching that works don't matter. If when we preach the gospel, we're not opening ourselves up to that accusation in some measure, we're probably not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is the gospel of grace. And when we preach grace, there are going to be some who come and say, then what about works? Why do they even matter? And we should be prepared to answer that question, and that's what this chapter of the confession answers for us. Why good works? What place do good works have in the life of a believer? So let's take a look at chapter 16 then of the confession. Uh, We'll read some of it, but not all of it for the sake of time. Much of it will, uh, I'll summarize by looking at the scripture passages that support uh, the teaching of the confession. But you'll notice on there there are five sections on the outline. We'll work our way through that outline. And we'll begin with that first point. What are good works? The first paragraph is short, so I will go ahead and read it. Good works are only those which God has commanded in his holy word. Works which do not have this warrant or authority devised or invented by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions are not good works. So, There's a positive statement and a negative statement, as you'll see on the outline there. Positively, only God can define what good works are. He's the only person who can say whether a work is good or bad. Negatively, we can't come up with our own ideas about what good works are. Only God, positively, only God can command us and tell us what is good. Negatively, we can't invent our own ways of doing good works. That might seem obvious. I mean, we could, we could go to a number of passages there uh, to support that. They're listed in the uh, parentheses there. But those are pretty obvious points. I think we would all agree. When it comes to good works, who else has the authority or the right to tell us what those good works are except for our Creator? 
Isn't God the only one in a position to be able to tell us what is good, what is right? But there's been throughout history a pattern of twisting and distorting this concept of what qualifies as a good work. So think about the scriptures. Can you think of any point in the scriptures where people were devising their own kinds of good works rather than doing what God has commanded? Anyone think of any? Before the flood? I heard that, okay. Yeah, before the flood, G- Jesus had to deal with others. So when, when in Matthew 15, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and, and he, he says, you guys are, are so worried about the traditions of the elders, these traditions that have been passed out through all these generations, like things like washing your hands ceremonially before a meal. You probably should wash your hands before a meal, but they were washing them ceremonially as a religious practice, saying this is, this is required if you're going to please God. You must wash your hands. Uh, or things like giving certain types of offerings to the temple that, that weren't directly required by God. And, and so they would come up with all of these different ways that you had to live and act and, and ceremonies you had to undergo in order to do good works, in order to be uh, pleasing to God. Jesus says actually what they're doing is they're, they're putting all of this emphasis on man-made tradition, man-made rules, while they're actually simultaneously neglecting the clear commands of God. That was in Jesus' day. Micah, the, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, he was dealing with very, a similar situation. The people were offering sacrifices. They thought they were doing good works before God. But Micah says, actually, you've forsaken the very basic elements of good works. You're doing all of these things, but you're not doing what God actually tells you to do. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In other words, you're doing all of these things that you think are good works. God has made it very clear. Love kindness, walk humbly, do justice. Those are the commands. Those are the good works that God has given you to do. The Apostle Paul in Colossians, dealing with similar things with people who were telling Christians that good works had to do with eating certain things, or not eating certain things, or recognizing certain festival days, or not recognizing certain festival days, or physically harming your body as an expression of devotion and sacrifice to God, or worshiping angels, or following visions, all of these things that that people were saying, if you're going to be a real religious spiritual person, you've got to do all of these things. These are good works. And Paul says, no, none of those things have any value in the kingdom of God because they're not commanded by God. Those are not the good works that God has prescribed for you to do. And that's a good reminder for two reasons. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that God tells us what a good work is and that we don't invent those things ourselves and that only God can command us what good works are and if we're doing something that's not what God has commanded, it's not a good work? Why does that matter? Well, first of all, because it means no one can impose upon you a requirement that God has not imposed upon you. When it comes to seeking to please your Father in heaven, no one can put burdens on you that God has not put on you. So when it comes to things like decisions you make for your family or what you eat or where you work or who or whether you marry, unless they find their basis in God's word, there is no command, no burden that others can put on you 
because God has not commanded it. It's not a good work unless it is commanded by God, either directly or implicitly. And then secondly, it's a good reminder because of the current cultural context in which we live. So we live in a day where authenticity equals righteousness. Isn't that true? Authenticity equals righteousness. As long as you are passionate and genuine and sincere in whatever it is you're pursuing, then who's to be your judge? Who, who can tell you that what you sincerely pursue is wrong? If you really feel it, if it's really true to you, then it's right and it's good. That's why we have phrases like, love is love, or just be true to yourself, or any number of other phrases that emphasize that sincerity equals rightness, equals what is good. But the scriptures teach us that sincerity is not the measure of what is good. You can be sincerely doing something, and the thing that you're sincerely doing can be something that God actually forbids or even hates. We should be sincere in the things that we do, of course, but we should be sincere in doing the things that God has commanded us to do. So love is not love if it's not the love that God has commanded. And you should not be true to yourself if yourself stands in contradiction with the clear commands of God's word. And thankfully, it isn't that complicated when we try to break it down and try to figure out what does it look like for me to do what God has commanded. God has not made it some very uh, confusing matrix that we have to try to figure out. Uh, when we talk about what's God's will for my life, what do I need to do to be pleasing to God, it's, it's not some hidden treasure box that we have to go searching for in order to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. He's made it very clear in his word. Good works are things like loving your neighbor, being kind to one another, speaking the truth in love, looking after orphans and widows, caring for the poor, meeting together with other believers, devoting yourself to prayer, and obviously the list goes on. Any, anything that is commanded by God in his word is the good works that we're to be doing. And so we don't have to go uh, searching or attempting to invent our own works that are good because God has clearly told us what's good. So God has not only told us what good works are, he's also told us why we should do them. And that's the next section in the uh, confession. Paragraph two has to do with the why, not just what good works are, but what's the motive or the incentive for us to do good works. I'll read that confession, or, or that paragraph, paragraph number two. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith. By these good works, believers manifest or demonstrate their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify or build up their brothers, adorn or enhance the profession of the gospel, silence the adversaries or the opponents, and glorify God whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that bearing fruit leading to their holiness, they may reach the goal, eternal life. So if you look over on the outline, those are listed out there, each of the reasons why good works are important. So the, the heading there is, what's the purpose of good works? Why, why are they important? And there's a list there, breaking down the confession with uh, the appropriate scripture passages to go with each of them. I won't go through each of those. There uh, are eight there, and we, for the sake of time, don't have time to go through each of them. But it's probably worth taking some time on your own to go and stir up a desire for good works by reading all of the reasons that are given there for why good works matter, why they're important. 
Then the next section of the confession here, uh, paragraph 3, has to do with where good works come from. Where do they come from? We won't read this paragraph, but the main points are broken down into two headings there, A and B. The Holy Spirit produces the good works in us, but we're still responsible to stir up good works. So where do good works come from? Well, they come from the Holy Spirit. Uh, We see that all over the place in the New Testament. Apart from Christ working in us by His Spirit, we can do nothing. We can bear no fruit. We cannot do good works. Our lives cannot be holy. We need the constant provision of grace from Christ. It's not enough to be regenerated, to be made new at conversion. That's obviously foundational. You must be made new. But the grace given at conversion is not sufficient to carry you through all the way to the end of your life in the bearing of good fruit. The point is, you must be converted and given a new heart, but then the rest of your life must also be lived in reliance upon the, the, uh, the enabling power of the Spirit to, to bear good fruit in your life. John, uh, John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So we ought to be deeply convinced of that, that apart from Christ, we really can do nothing. Philippians 2 verse 13 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Where does the desire to do God's pleasure come from? Where does the ability to do God's pleasure come from? Paul says, it is God who is at work in you. He's the one producing that. That's Philippians 2 verse 13. And so then at the end of the day, when we look back on our lives and we see You know what? The Lord has helped me grow in fruitfulness and good works. I am growing in patience and selflessness and humility and kindness and acts of service. I see ways that that my life is starting to bear good fruit. Then at the end of the day, we give all glory to God. It's all from Him. It is the gift of His Holy Spirit in our lives. But we're also responsible to stir up good works. So good works find their source in the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit alone and yet we're responsible to stir up those good works. That same passage in Philippians 2 that says God is at work in you also says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, just as you've always obeyed, so now also in my absence, Paul says. And so we ought to be stirring our hearts to obey him, to to serve him, to bear fruit. In other words, even though the Holy Spirit alone can produce the good works in us, the pursuit of those good works is not passive but active. It's not passive, but active. It's God who works in us, and yet we're responsible to stir up his grace as we pursue a life of obedient fruitfulness. So I'm sure this has never happened to anyone in this room, but imagine that one Sunday morning you wake up and you decide, I really don't feel like going to church this morning. I just, I don't even want to go. I was up late last night and it was a long week, and I don't feel very good about myself spiritually right now, and I just have no desire to get dressed and go to church. I'd rather stay home by myself today. What do you do in that situation? On a Sunday morning, it's 9.15, you've got 45 minutes to get here, 
if you're going to walk through the door right as the service starts. What do you do? Well, some people would say, don't go to church. Why, why would you go to church when your heart's not in it? You would be a hypocrite. You, you would be legalistic. To do something that you don't sincerely desire to do would be legalistic. And so instead, instead of going to church when, you, when your heart's not in it and being a hypocrite, instead what you should do is you should not go to church and wait for the Holy Spirit to move your heart. And when the Holy Spirit gives you the desire, then you'll know you're really walking in obedience because he's given you the desire. So, so don't do it if you don't feel like it. Instead, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit to give you the desire, and then you should do what God has commanded you to do. And while we should want to be sincere in coming to church and in every other act of obedience, the Scriptures nowhere teach us that we should delay obedience to God's commands until we have some feeling of the Holy Spirit's work in our heart. And so instead of sitting home and saying, I'm not going to church today because I don't feel the Holy Spirit moving me toward that, and my heart's not in it, we should get dressed, and we should get in the car, and we should come to the church. And the whole way, we should say, Lord, I am trusting you, and I am obeying you. You've told me that I should not forsake the assembly of believers. I'm trusting you, and I'm obeying you. I confess my heart is ice cold, and I have no desire to go worship you today. I know that's sin. Forgive me, but I'm doing it. Give me grace that I might do it with my whole heart. There's a big difference between sitting back in disobedience and taking a step forward in obedience, trusting that God will give the grace needed to carry it out. And so we don't wait, even though it's the Holy Spirit's work in us, it's not a passive pursuit when it comes to good works. We actively pursue obedience to him, constantly asking for the Holy Spirit's help as we do that. And then fourthly, the fourth section on here, what does God think of our good works? And there are two main headings there. This is paragraphs four to six of the confession. Two main headings there. Even the best works fall short. But then secondly, our works are accepted and rewarded through Christ. So first of all, even the best works fall short. If you jump over to the confession in uh, paragraph three, no, paragraph four, sorry, paragraph four. Let me read that paragraph. It's an interesting one. It says, those who attain to the greatest height of obedience which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate or carry out meritorious works beyond their duty and to do more than God requires that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound or required to do. I'm sure we all understand that paragraph perfectly because we use words like supererogate in most conversations throughout the day. Has anyone ever heard the word supererogate? I, yeah, yeah, me either. So super arrogate is defined there as carrying out meritorious works beyond their duty. To super arrogate means to carry out meritorious works beyond our duty. In other words, it means to go so far above and beyond what God has basically required of us that a person actually builds up extra merit. It's sort of like an extra credit on an exam. So you, on an exam, let's say it's a 20-question exam. If you answer all 20 questions correct, what's your score? 100%, an A+. But what about if you turn to the back page and you've got the five extra credit questions and you answer all five of those extra credit questions correctly? Those aren't required, strictly speaking. They're not part of your ultimate grade. If you didn't answer them, you wouldn't get less than 100. 
but you go above the basic requirement of the exam and you answer all five of those questions and you get them all right, and now you've got a 10% additional storehouse of merit for your grade. That's what it means to super arrogate. So now you can use that word in daily conversation. To super arrogate means to go above and beyond the basic requirements that God has given you so that you earn an extra storehouse of mercy or uh, of merit. And this is one of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, again, that led to things like uh, the indulgences or relics or things like that. Because the idea was basically there are certain saints throughout church history who have done that very thing. They've not only fulfilled the the basic requirements of God's commands, they've gone above and beyond, and they have lived such a righteous life of good works that they've actually merited this treasure of merit, this additional storehouse of merit. And when you pay indulgences or when you tap into their merits through through contact with relics, then you're actually getting some of that merit for yourself so that it will lessen your years in purgatory. So aside from the fact that purgatory is not a real thing, the concept of supererogation is also a false concept. God is so far above and beyond us, and even our best works, the, the best things we could ever do in this life, even our best works fall so far short of his glory and the glory that is to come in eternity. There's such a contrast between the greatness of God and our small little efforts at obedience, that we could never earn anything from him on a meritorious basis. That's absurd. The Bible makes very clear that's absurd. The only merit that is sufficient to secure our acceptance with him and to make sure that we never experience an ounce of the Father's wrath in hell is the merit of Jesus. All other supposed merit, any of this super irrigation stuff, It's a complete distortion of God's justice and his goodness. And it is a complete minimization of our sinfulness. We are sinful. God is holy. And the only thing that can come between God who is holy and us who are sinful in order to to, to span the gap and bring us back into a loving relationship with our Father is not our merit, but the merit of Christ, his obedience and his death. And so this... Uh, idea of supererogation is, is completely false, but we should also remember any ideas we have of our relationship with our Father as His children who are beloved by Him, any idea we have that that relationship is dependent upon any merit of our own is a completely unbiblical distortion of who He is, both as a holy judge and as a loving Father. We are His by virtue of grace on the basis of the merits of Christ. So that's the first point then of that section that even our best works fall short. But then secondly, even though our best works fall fall short, our works are accepted and are rewarded in Christ. So they're not meritorious, but to be meritorious is not the same thing as to be pleasing. We don't merit anything from our Father, but we can be pleasing to our Father. And we can actually be rewarded graciously by our Father because we serve him and offer him our good deeds through Christ. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It's a helpful verse here on this concept. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. 
The Apostle Peter writes, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What makes our acts of service and devotion and obedience acceptable to God, even as believers? Well, certainly it isn't the inherent quality of our deeds. So imagine for a moment anything that you've done today, and imagine that God looked at that deed with strictly through the lens of his justice. You're, whatever it is, imagine some act that you did today that you did in service to God, and imagine that God looked at that act strictly on the basis of his justice and treated you strictly according to the inherent quality of that act. And then consider Jesus' words reminding us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And ask yourself, in that moment, was everything in you loving your heavenly Father with all that it, had up, all that it could muster? Every, every ounce of your fiber, every mental uh, faculty that you, that you have, everything geared and directed without hindrance in love to your Father. If God were to treat or respond to our acts of service, even as Christians, strictly according to the lens of justice, he would find no pleasure in them because they're still mixed with sinfulness and weakness and imperfection. But he doesn't look at them strictly through the lens of justice. He looks at them through the lens of our union with Christ. And so as we offer up acts of worship to God, obedience, good works, as we do that, yes, they're imperfect, they're mixed with with wrong motives often, but as we do that, the Father looks at us and our works through the lens of his Son, and he finds pleasure in them. He sees the good that is there, Christ presents it to the Father as an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable offering, and God actually takes pleasure in our acts of devotion, which should be an encouragement to us because Yes, we could study ourselves all day long and see the remaining imperfection and feel like God would never really be pleased with us, or we could see ourselves in the context of our union with Christ and remember even our imperfect sacrifices of worship and praise and good works to God are accepted and even rewarded graciously by our Heavenly Father because we're united to His beloved Son. To quote Sam Waldron, he says, God graciously and kindly responds to our efforts to please him, notwithstanding all their defects, because he looks upon us in Christ. So, then summing up that that heading there, even our best works, the best things we could ever do, merit absolutely nothing from God. They don't merit anything, but they are pleasing to him when offered in faith through Christ. And then lastly, the final section there, can unbelievers do good works? This is the final paragraph of the confession. I'll read this paragraph. Works done by unregenerate men may in themselves be things which God commands and of good use, both to themselves and others. However, they do not proceed from a heart purified by faith, nor are they done in a right manner according to the word, nor are they done with a right end or purpose the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God, nor do they qualify a man to receive grace from God. Nevertheless, the neglect of good works is still more sinful and displeasing to God. Appreciate that final sentence. So unbelievers may do certain things commanded by God, that last uh, letter A there under the last heading. Unbelievers may do certain things commanded by God, 
Uh, I, I should have written it down. I, I didn't, but um, one, of the, one of the things I was reading on this section of the Confessions, basically it, it refers back to Jehu from the book of 2 Kings, which is one of the references there. And Jehu was a, was a wicked man. He was not a good king. He was uh, full of idolatry. And yet, at one point, God actually commends Jehu for not being quite as wicked as his forefathers. <laughs> and, and there's another example of Ahab uh, in 1 Kings, who was another wicked king and uh, was, was extremely prideful and lived a life of, of sin uh, even as, as king. But at one point in his life, he humbled himself. And God actually decided to delay the judgment that he was going to bring because of Ahab's humility in that moment. Jehu and Ahab were, were wicked kings, and yet God essentially commends them for their act of obedience in that moment. And, and the quote from the commentator was something along, or the, uh, the pastor who was speaking on this, was something along the lines of, we ought to be prepared to acknowledge that sinful men can do what is good before God because God himself says, Jehu did well. <laughs> so that's, that's surprising to us. Could we look out at a sinful world and in some way, in some fashion, acknowledge, you know what, those who are without Christ, in some way, they do well. They can be good mothers and good fathers and good rulers and good teachers and good employees. They can do certain things that God has commanded. So what does that mean? Does that, we've already looked at total depravity in the confession, the sinfulness of, of humanity. Does that mean then that there's a contradiction that men, actually, men and women aren't actually as sinful as we've said they are? Well, no, because outward conformity to the law of God does not equate obedience to God. It doesn't mean that it's pleasing to God. And so that's the second section on here. The works of unbelievers cannot please God. They might be outwardly conformed to his commands, but they're not pleasing to him. And the reason, as the confession says, is because they don't proceed from a heart of faith. They're not done in the right manner. Uh, so an example of that would be 1 Corinthians 13. You know, I could do all of these things. I could give my, my, uh, surrender my body to be burned that, that seems like an act of good works, doesn't it? If I give my body to be burned for the sake of someone else, I could do all of those things, but if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. The manner is wrong. And so both because it doesn't proceed from a heart of faith and because the manner, the heart, what characterizes the heart is wrong and because the motive is wrong. It's not done for the glory of God. Apart from those three things, nobody can please God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, you can't please God. And so anyone who is outside of Christ, no matter what they might look like on the outside, internally they have a heart of unbelief that does not love God, does not trust God, and does not desire the glory of God. And any action that looks good outwardly is actually motivated by a heart that's in rebellion against its creator. So then it comes back to, well, actually, before we get there, let me, let me quote one, uh, one writer on this, which I think balances these two things out well. So there's this idea that on the one hand, we acknowledge sinful men actually can do certain things that God has commanded, but on the other hand, they can never please God. We hold those two things in balance. One writer has said, we can rejoice and give God praise for the good that unregenerate people do. We can thank others for their kindness to us, even if they're not believers. 
Yet we must also be clear that God knows that these things proceed not from a heart purified by faith in Christ. There is one thing that the unbeliever refuses to take into account, and that is the glory of God. And so we can be thankful for the good that exists in some measure, even in those who are not in Christ. But we also have to acknowledge it's not what's pleasing to God. It's still sin. And yet it's better for them to outwardly obey than to not obey at all, the confession says. So just because it's not pleasing to God doesn't mean that people should be as wicked as they should be. They should repent and trust in Christ. But even those who don't repent, it would be better that they obey outwardly than not at all. All right, to sum up much of the chapter then, uh, that, that verse from Ephesians 2, I think, pretty much wraps it up for us. We can uh, end on that note. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast, not as a result of works. But at the same time, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which have been prepared for you beforehand that you might walk in them. This balance, you're freely forgiven and saved by grace alone, and yet you're freely forgiven and saved for the purpose of living a life of good works. It's only from the foundation of grace that a life will ever be abundant in good works. If we skip that foundation, if we go straight from a life of sin to trying to live a good life, we miss the whole basis of salvation. It's, I'm in a life of sin. How do I get to a life of good works? I trust wholly in the merits of Jesus Christ that I might be forgiven by his grace, his grace alone, and then it's God who produces the good works in me that I'm called to live as one who's in Christ. All right, well, let's pray, and we'll finish. Our Father, we do thank you that you have not required of us payment for our sin. You haven't required that we live a life of perfect righteousness in order to merit your love for us or your grace. We thank you that even as believers, you don't treat us strictly according to our sin and what our sin would deserve, but you have saved us on the basis of grace. You've united us to your Son, and you now treat us according to what you see when you look at your Son. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that rest and believe everything that you have promised to us through Christ, that we would be confident of our adoption as your children and of your love for us. And at the same time, Father, we pray that you would make us a people who are diligent in doing the kinds of good deeds that are pleasing to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.